How did this podcast get to you? I'm recording it today, sitting in my office outside of New York City. I'm speaking into a Rode microphone. That microphone is connected by a braided cable that I bought on Kickstarter to a Grace preamp. That Grace preamp has another cable, and that cable is connected to a Zoom H4n recorder. That recorder is recording in WAV format on a USB card that I bought online. After I'm done recording it, I'll take that USB card, connect it to a USB reader, bring it into my computer, edit it, and we can go on and on and on. All I know is there's a chain between me and you. And toward the end of that chain, you might choose to post this podcast to Facebook. And if you do, it's likely that Facebook will put up a warning saying that there's something malicious in the podcast and keep other people from seeing it. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. This chain I'm talking about is a chain of interoperability. All of the organizations all of the inventors, all of the people that created and built the chain between me and you don't know each other. Not only don't they know each other, they never even communicated. It is not necessary for them to communicate because there is a network, a web of interoperability that when you buy a pair of headphones, until very recently, you knew that that pair of headphones would plug into whatever device you had that had that little hole that takes a headphone jack. And interoperability is really important in today's world. We need to make some urgent, essential decisions about how important interoperability is to our future. Our guide is Cory Doctorow. He has written a series of posts on the EFF.org website. You can find them in the show notes. We start with this. Three kinds of of interoperability, indifferent, cooperative, and adversarial. Indifferent interoperability is much of what we just talked about. Corey uses the example of the cigarette lighter in your car. You can plug lots of different things into the cigarette lighter in your car. I hope you don't use a cigarette lighter, but just about anything else. You can power things that way. This use of the cigarette lighter came along because it's your car and you can do what you wish with it, including powering the charger for your cell phone. Indifferent interoperability is part of what makes human culture work. You can get new drumsticks for your drum, and you can still play it. The next level, which is sort of similar, is cooperative interoperability, in which the people who make a thing accept and embrace the fact 
that you're going to have to stick something else in it. This Zoom recorder requires a 4 gigabyte USB card. Zoom doesn't care who makes the 4 gigabyte USB card. Don't get an 8 gigabyte one and it won't work. They don't say that on the box, but it's worth knowing. But yeah, you can stick a 4 gigabyte USB card in. There is a standard, and standards bodies exist around the world. There are hundreds of thousands of them. People who come together to agree on a standard. Why? They agree on a standard because cooperating about a standard makes their own product work better. When you get in a car, you can drive all the way across the country, any country, buying gas along the way, knowing that the gas will work in your car. Yet, the people from the petroleum company haven't spent any time sitting with the person who built your car because the gasoline is interoperable with the car. And as you're driving, you are driving on a road. That road did not know you were coming. That road will not change after you left. That it is a system, a network, that is both resilient but mostly interoperable. If Zoom couldn't rely on the fact that all USB cards were essentially the same, then they'd either have to make their own USB card or rely on a different standard. So when you open a JPEG file in your image editing software, all JPEG files follow the same rules. They could be pictures of a baseball, a football, or a, a galaxy. It doesn't matter. But the format of the file follows a set of rules. Those rules were agreed upon by a standards body voluntarily. Most voluntary standards have been around for a long time. An inch was an inch long before some government said how long an inch was. The headphone jack, as we discussed earlier with the headphones that work on every single device except for something that Apple did recently. People have asked why we would remove the analog headphone jack. Well, the reason to move on, I'm going to give you three of them, but it really comes down to one word, courage. In many cases, the standard existed long before the company that uses the standard showed up. So if you're going to start a new stereo company, you're going to put a headphone jack in your amp or your preamp. That headphone jack standard was established before you got there. It's cooperative interoperability because if all the headphones in the world disappeared, if all the USB cards in the world disappeared, if all the JPEG files in the world disappeared, your product, your software, it wouldn't work as well. And so not just in the world of tech, but in so many places, we embrace the idea of cooperative interoperability. The people who made the lock on the front door of your house want locksmiths to be able to make copies of the key. Because if it wasn't possible to make copies of the key, then the lock wouldn't function as well. But along the way, greedy companies saying that they're trying to make things better, but mostly because they're trying to make more money, break cooperative interoperability. So Apple, claiming it was a courageous move, takes the headphone jack out of their iPhones. And then, coincidentally, comes out with a new format, a format that they have the patent to, a format that they control, a format where it is no longer interoperable without their permission, now you have to use their format if you want to make 
a pair of headphones. Or some upscale lock companies, or especially car companies, are now saying, oh, you can't get your car key copied at a locksmith. You have to get your car key copied at the dealer. So now a car key doesn't cost $6. A car key costs $300. We know that people are making money on that process and that the consumers aren't benefiting. It is possible to find third-party hacks creating a new kind of interoperability that we'll cover in a minute for keys for an Audi or a Prius for about a third the price of what they would cost at your dealer. And they work just as well. And so the car companies are in a race to break this again because they're trying to make a better profit, not because they're trying to make a better product. Why do companies seek to break cooperative interoperability? Well, it goes back to King Gillette, to razors and blades. That if you can figure out how to give away the razor and make money from blades, human nature may take you up on that offer. Human nature will say, wow, this razor is only a dollar, not $10. I'll buy it. But then Gillette gets you. They'll get you because the only blades you can use are Gillette blades. And they make enough money on every one of those blades to subsidize the discount they gave you on that razor in the first place. Or consider how much money cell phone companies or others pay in marketing, advertising, promotion, and hype to get people to sign a long-term contract. They'll give you, quote, the free phone. Well, of course it's not free. You're actually paying for it month after month after month over time. And if they made it too easy for you to get free blades, in quotation marks, they wouldn't have as much money up front to subsidize the razors. And now we come to this idea of adversarial interoperability. Adversarial interoperability says that we need to make it so that third parties, other people, other companies, can use a system even when the inventor, the owner of the system, doesn't want them to. You may remember Mint.com. It's a personal finance site that lets you see how all of your finances, credit cards, banks, etc., all fit together. Notice that the banks and the credit card companies haven't done the hard work of setting up a voluntary standard that makes it easy for all of the information you need to be instantly exchanged. There's a reason for this. The banks are sitting there with a razor and blade situation. The banks are saying, we want to be able to pay for branches. We want to be able to pay for full page ads. We want to be able to pay to sponsor this tennis tournament. But the only way we can do that is to get your savings, your checking, your credit card, your insurance, and everything else. And so the idea that they would voluntarily sign up for a standard that lets you take all the information you need about some element of your personal finance and mix it with something from another company and then another company, it would give too much power to us, the consumer. Because we could say, oh, this company offers the single best slice of the pie for, I don't know, checking. I'll just do my checking over here and integrate it with this thing over there. So no. There's no easy-to-use standard. 
So what did Mint do? They spent a fortune building a system that would go to websites pretending to be a person, scraping that website, which is a computer term for copying the data, and then putting it into a format that Mint's servers could understand. So one time and one time only, you would teach Mint the login ritual you have at every one of your finance partners, partners in quotation marks, and then it would go and update the data on a regular basis. And yes, you've probably guessed it, the banks and other financial institutions set up countermeasures, working overtime to keep their own customers from getting what their own customers knew was best, their own data. And so we have a problem. And the problem is these institutions, these data monopolies, these social networks, they were all built on the idea using the methods of cooperative interoperability. Facebook would not have existed if Mark Zuckerberg hadn't been able to use the open internet to spread ideas. Twitter is built on a network, systems, processes, and software that were all freely available, that all interact with one another. And then, after spending a fortune, after going public, after trying to maximize every single thing that's available to them, it occurs to big networks that one thing they can do is close down interoperability. So you may not remember this, but back in the day, it was against the law to plug a phone that wasn't built by AT&T into the AT&T network. Now, the AT&T network would say, oh, it's not safe to plug in a third-party phone. This is, of course, absurd. It's totally safe. In fact, every phone you've used that's a landline phone has almost certainly not been built by AT&T we discovered that opening the network, letting people plug fax machines, answering machines into the network made it work better for the people who are using it. So as we think about the future of these networks that we are now spending more and more of our time on, the question is, what are we going to do about adversarial interoperability? Should it be required that you can easily take your data out of Facebook? Should it be possible to plug something into a network so the network works better for you? Right now, there's pressure on organizations like Facebook to censor and control the inputs to their network, figure out who is running that ad, figure out whether or not this hate speech is okay or not. But what happens if instead we let third parties create tuners and those tuners would permit anyone who wants to to not see any ad that didn't come from a verified source or let anyone who wants to not see any content that has been labeled by other users of the tuner as hate content, creating our own filters, each person getting involved in the adversarial interoperability, putting data in, getting data out. There aren't a lot of people who are complaining about how the phone network works. The phone network doesn't decide how you make a phone call, and it doesn't decide who you make a phone call to. What we would really like is for the last mile people, the cell phone networks, to block the crazy spam phone calls that are coming through, but that's because the system is open. 
and we would like there to be a filter of our choosing in between us and the system. Think about the fact that when you get a voicemail, you can't even forward it. Why can't you forward a voicemail once you get it? Because the system is closed. Because there's no way for someone who wants to make the system better to build something on top of the system. The magic factor here is this. Networks are incredibly powerful. A network is significantly more important and leveraged than growing a tomato. You grow a tomato, you sell a tomato. But when you build a network, the network gets more powerful the more people use the network. And the network is sticky. That once we're in a network, once we've learned how it works, once the others we want to connect with are in the network, the switching costs are really high. And so what comes with network effects are huge upsides, bounties, not just for the people who use them, but for the people who build them and control them. And open networks, the kind of networks we've had for 10,000 years, open networks are resilient and efficient. And as soon as a network starts to falter, the interoperability that's available to us helps us make the network better. But closed networks with lock-in, that leads to the most hated companies in our culture. We hate the cable company because we're locked in and we don't have any choices because the razors might have been free, but the blades are too expensive. That what we end up with, if we permit people who build networks to completely control them without any entity being able to come along and use that network to make things better for its customers, what we end up with is calcification, stagnation. We end up with copyright regimes that keep getting longer and longer so that public domain starts to fade from our memory. We end up with systems that are frustrating and that don't advance. The magic of the last 25 years of the internet, the best parts have been how quickly things got better when someone figured out how to make them better. But today, there are all these people who want to make your experience better in the social communities, the social networks we belong to, and they're not permitted to do so. Today, there are tons of ways to make our financial systems much more efficient, particularly for people who aren't fully banked, who don't have access to many of the tools that enable people who are better off to live a better life. The more we open these systems and permit change to happen, the better things get, not just for the users in the short run and the long run, but also in the long run for the people who build and support these networks. So yes, please go ahead and share this podcast wherever you'd like to. And yes, please, you should go ahead and start a podcast. And I don't care what network you put the podcast on. And I don't care what microphone you use to record the podcast. And I don't even care that much about what the podcast is about. Because if I want to listen to the podcast, I can, but I don't have to. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Loyal listeners know that I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, 
I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We've got three juicy questions this week. They all sort of interlock. Here we go. Hi, this is Stuart, traveling from the Netherlands. I've been working in sales for the last six years, and your episode about how we view ourselves really intrigued me. I think in sales um, and certain other professions, there's a lot of quantifiable data around how we're doing. But I do sometimes stop to think that we just twist the data to tell us what we want to know. Do you think even when there's data available that certain jobs or certain roles, whether they be professional or creative, actually twist the truth and use that data simply to validate a position, whether positive or negative, rather than use it to better understand where they stand in relation to customer success, customer happiness, or just overall happiness. (laughs) Okay, thanks for everything you do. Thank you, Stuart, for this question. You know, sometimes a lazy writer will begin a chapter with a quote from the dictionary, as if quoting the dictionary makes their point true. And we are now entering the season of charts and graphs on television and polling data. And what we know is that when we present data to someone else, we are not showing them everything. It is not the territory. It is one person's map. It has a point of view. If you don't have a point of view when you are presenting your data to someone else, then you're only doing half the job. Because no matter how you have collated the data, it represents a point of view. So our job is to bring people both the data and the point of view and to be clear and honest about it. And so when we present ourselves data, we also have to be clear about what we're looking for. The history of science is littered with one experimenter after another who was staring right at data that had the right answer, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it because it didn't match their point of view. We are living through revolutionary times, big and small. And the nature of revolution is simple. It's when the existing, prevailing, accurate data doesn't match our point of view. So instead, we focus on something else, something that reinforces it, something that might be false evidence appearing real. So yes, that's at the heart of why it's essential that every citizen understand statistics so we won't get tricked by somebody else's point of view or even our own. Hi, Seth. This is Lewis from Los Angeles. We talk a lot about being an artist, being a linchpin, being that difference maker that can do work that matters. And uh, myself and your audience, we're either that or we're going to be with your help. But I feel like the world still depends a lot on people who do not do that. Uh, We work in large, complex organizations. A lot of us do. And many of those people up and down the chain have to follow that map in order for things to flow and function. You think about workers on an automobile factory floor. They got to do the same thing every day. They got to show up on time. They got to be replaceable when they don't. You got to have those people to do it. And there's been a trend to go to roboticizing everything. And we're not there yet. And until we are, this is what we have to deal with. And my question is to the point of, 
how do leaders like your audience and hopefully myself can reconcile what I want to do with the people I need that have to show up and conform and have to be trained in school to be compliant in order to get the things I've made out into the world on a repetitive basis and to enough people. I know we need small audiences, just, just small enough to be successful, but we're in a world where things are made on large scale. I don't see that changing. I don't see us going back to small little independent makers. It's, it's just still too expensive to do that. Mass scale has brought things cheaply to us and created abundance. So uh, I have a trouble reconciling, reconciling, balancing my vision with people I work with and people I need who need to not follow that guideline. Thanks for your help, Seth. You've been great. Thank you, Lewis. This is something I've been hearing since I wrote Lynchpin more than 10 years ago. And the argument goes correctly. Hey, the industrial era requires people who are compliant. It requires people who will do what they're told. It requires people who don't want to be linchpins, but instead are willing to be replaceable cogs in a giant system. What about those people? And I have a two-part answer. The first part is we're not running out of those people. We have indoctrinated so many hundreds of millions of people, billions around the world, to believe that that is their destiny, that we are not running out of those people. There are no organizations that I know of that said, I only wish I could find people who will only do exactly what is written down and measured. The second thing is, yes, we need those people, but it doesn't have to be you. And your organization doesn't have to be an organization that depends on lots of those people in full-time permanent jobs. What you can do now more than ever is outsource things to organizations and other people who desperately want to be cogs in the system. But you can add value in a different way. We have certainly seen this in how manufacturing has moved away from certain locations to other ones. Because once it moves to a cheaper place, it is still possible to make a living doing something associated with manufacturing, but that doesn't mean you need to build a factory. Just as you don't have to build an email server to run an email marketing campaign. And so, where is the frontier? The data keeps showing us the answer over and over again. The frontier is not the race to the bottom of somehow churning it out cheaper than your competition. The frontier is in the organizations that race to the top, that have figured out how to bring in people who act more like people and less like machines. If we think back just 150 years ago, the backbreaking, dehumanizing work that was done by everybody, not just people we're tempted to overlook today, but people like the people who are listening to this podcast, regardless of background, where you would go to work for 12 or 13 hours and you would physically hurt yourself following the instructions of a foreperson, all right, a foreman, who would push you ever harder. The number of those jobs that are done by people who also work in ideas keeps getting smaller. And to your point about car manufacturing, if we think about every car manufacturer who has hit a wall, who has stumbled in the last 25 years, it has not been because their hardworking, underappreciated workforce didn't follow instructions. It has been because the designers, the foremen, 
the supervisors, the creators, the marketers, the strategic planners got lazy. It's because they didn't lean into their work. They just did what they did yesterday. And that is where opportunity lies and where the peril lies in figuring out how to be a human, not how to do what you're told. Which brings us to Michael's question. Hi, Seth. It's Michael in Los Gatos, California. So listening to the questions on your Alexander's Theorem podcast, one of the speakers sounded to me mm, suspiciously like a computer. I'll let you guess which one it was that I'm talking about. But while I thought it was too perfect for human speech, I went back and listened again. And and then I really wasn't sure, which, of course, is exactly your point from uh, the Is Seth Real podcast. So then I got to thinking about AI-assisted speaking or AI-assisted video. What if this is less of a perceived threat and more of an opportunity to help people who might have trouble being articulate? Perhaps people can connect and communicate better if they're AI-assisted. And then I was wondering if this can be harnessed to improve communication. What if everyone using AI to communicate are required to show some form of a, I'll just call it a true ID, you know, identify themselves as an AI-assisted human in some way? That might give us a little more integrity in, in our ability to believe in what we're seeing or, or hearing. Technology is there with digital watermarking, uh, maybe even blockchain. Seems like an easy lift. I'd love to hear your thought on that. Thanks for all you do. The real Seth is making a huge positive difference in this world. Cheers. Thank you for this, Michael. Yeah, I don't think it was a computer. I think it was a person with excellent... <laughs> no, I don't think it was a computer. I think it was someone with excellent diction. I could learn a lesson or two from them. Here's the thing. We wear sneakers when we run the marathon. In the old days, in the barefoot days, that would have been considered cheating. Nike is coming out with a sneaker with a spring in it. That is, in some circles, considered cheating. People use a spell checker before they submit a resume or write a letter. Is that cheating? We have been augmented by industry for a really long time. And we draw these artificial lines. Doping's against the law, but eating healthy food is not. Having a trainer who strains the juices and the vegetables to make it an extra healthy diet is also not against the rules. And indeed, what we're going to see for the foreseeable future is a centaur, somebody who is half machine and half person, a cyborg, if you will. We already are that. We are already wired through our fingers into Wikipedia, into the spell checkers, into the giant web work network that is a billion of us. And so AI is going to be an extension of that. And no, it's not going to get labeled any more than we are labeling a book. This was copy edited by a computer or copy edited by a really good copy editor. We are just going to interpret what is coming to us based on our alternatives And what that means is that people who get good at using these tools are going to be our chosen alternative. What does it mean for us then? It means it's no longer acceptable to be a mediocre writer because the computer can do that 24 hours a day for me for free. It is no longer useful, as Lewis's question points out, to be the worker who can move a pallet from here to there because now there's a robot that can move a pallet from here to there. It's the same question on a slightly elevated axis, which is, do we care enough to bring emotional labor to the table, to work without a manual, to fly without a net, 
because it's the only work that's truly fulfilling and available to us right now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.